0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolias First. For more information, visit www.magnoliasfirst.org. Well, I do want to welcome all of you who are here in the worship center as well as those who are watching online at home or wherever you might be uh, on a mobile device or if you're listening to the podcast later on. Whatever the means, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, before we get into the message, I want to share with you uh, a brand new ministry that we will be premiering this week called Sermon Bites. And you've heard uh, of a sound bite before. Well, this is a sermon bite. So each day we'll be sending out an email that will contain a brief video devotional, two to three minutes, uh, pulling a truth from the previous Sunday's sermon and uh, expanding on it just a little bit for a daily devotional. So uh, we already uh, have produced for many years email daily devotionals. If you don't get those but would like to, just let us know. But if you're on our email list, we'll be sending you uh, this new Sermon Bites uh, audio, video devotional. Uh, If you already have more devotional material than you need and you don't wish to receive it, just simply unsubscribe. Uh, I'll never know. It won't hurt my feelings, okay? Uh, But I hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you as we reflect back on the truths of Scripture from the previous Sunday. Well, we are in a, a series entitled, When God Walked Among Us. Uh, We're looking at the four chapters uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 6 through 9, and we're looking at uh, a section of Jesus' earthly ministry, when God incarnate walked on planet Earth. And today we come to chapter 7, and we'll be looking at selected verses uh, throughout the seventh chapter of John's Gospel. Just a a brief review, last Sunday in chapter 6, Uh, We had in that passage what is called the bread of life discourse, where Jesus talked about being the bread of life, how he is uh, the only one who can satisfy our spiritual hunger, and that though uh, physical bread might be delicious in the moment, but it doesn't last, where uh, the spiritual bread of Jesus' salvation is a bread that leaves us never hungry again. Uh, well, today he, he continues uh, that imagery, and he describes himself uh, in the fulfillment of Scripture as the living water. And you'll see that as we look at a part of John's chapter 7, uh, how he is the only one who can quench the thirst of our souls. You know, it can be frustrating Uh, When people believe things that aren't true, it can even uh, be tragic, and that's been common throughout history. If you think all the way back to Christopher Columbus, uh, who discovered America, before that voyage, people uh, in his day believed, they, they truly believed that the earth was flat and that you could sail a ship out to the edge of the horizon, and sooner or later, he would just drop off the edge of the earth. They believed the earth was flat, but they were wrong. And More recently, in American history, uh, I think of our first president, George Washington. Uh, After he had served the country so well and and served as our uh, initial founding father president, uh, after he retired uh, and he became ill with really what was just an infection that today could be easily cured with a simple regimen of antibiotics. Uh, They believed at the time that the best medical treatment was to cut sick people and let them bleed, and somehow that would purge sickness from their body. They called it bloodletting. And the first president of our nation uh, lay on his deathbed uh, with something that today could be so easily cured and, and literally just bled for no reason because they thought that was the the true way To treat him and it's just so sad you could go on and on of how people believe things that are not true and it's it's still true today there are so many people who believe things that are not true and they oppose things that are true and not only on a societal level but it's true in a personal context Now, I don't want to see a show of hands either here in the worship center or uh, at home online, uh, but just in your own mind respond to this question. Has somebody ever said things about you that were untrue? Have people said things about you that simply just were not true? And usually they don't say them to your face, they say them where? Yeah, behind your back. And they say things that are not true. And if, if that's happened, and it's happened to most of us, we know that's deeply hurtful for people to say things that aren't true, to oppose us in some way. Uh, but if that's true for us as mere human beings, think how much more hurtful that was for Jesus. Because for Jesus, it wasn't just other random human beings that were saying things that were unkind and untrue and bitter and hostile toward him. It was his own creation. For John chapter 1 says that Jesus was co-creator with the Father for all that was created. So the people that were saying these horrible things about Jesus were his own creation. And not only did they criticize him and oppose him, but they eventually would execute him on a cruel Roman cross. But as we see today in John chapter 7, as Jesus was encountering uh, opposition, you will see that there are three primary groups that the story will unfold that oppose Jesus in John 7. First of all, there were his brothers and we'll unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> Secondly, there was the crowd, just the, the, the mass of people, the mob, the nameless uh, crowd. And third, and most intensely, there were the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, we know them as the, the Pharisees. All of these would oppose and criticize Jesus. But as we will see today, and this is our big idea, living water will, and I could insert, always outlast its critics. And we'll see that in John chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, open them please to John chapter 7. I'll be reading, as always, from the New Living Translation. And you follow along in whatever translation you may have. We'll read selected verses throughout John 7, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. We'll come back to that term in a moment. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you may be familiar with their uh, doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. They believe that Mary did not have any other children besides Jesus. And uh, and, and I don't mean to demean them, but uh, simply put, in biblical doctrine, uh, that's incorrect. They're... they're quotations from the New Testament where Jesus did have siblings. And in this case, he's in conversation with his brothers, technically his half-brothers, because they shared the same mother, Mary, but they had different fathers in the sense that Jesus, as we know, was divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a human father. So they were his half-siblings, but here called his brothers. By the way, can you imagine what it would be like to grow up with a perfect older brother? And some of you are thinking, yeah, my older brother thinks he's perfect. But, I mean, Jesus really was. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. He never did anything sinful. They grew up. And so I think there was just a little bit of human resentment toward him. At this point in the the divine drama of Jesus' earthly ministry, none of these brothers believe in him as Messiah. Now, we know that later on at least one, his half-brother James came to believe in him. James went on to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he would eventually be martyred, be killed for his faith in Jesus as Savior. But at this point in the New Testament narrative he does not and none of his other brothers do either believe in jesus and so they're kind of they're kind of pushing jesus here they're they're goading him they're they're taunting him uh, they're saying listen don't do these miracles in uh, in galilee I mean, Galilee's the country. Go to the city. Go to the region of Judea. Go to Jerusalem, the capital city. If you want to be famous, Jesus, if you want to be a celebrity, go do your miracles in the big city. It would be kind of like saying, Jesus, don't do your miracles in cut and shoot. Do them in Houston. Go to New York City. That's where you'll hit the big time. And so they're, they're taunting him to go to Jerusalem, and Jesus would indeed do so, but not for the reasons that they were citing. Now here's the context of what was happening. In Jerusalem, there was a religious celebration going on. It, it was called the the Feast of the Tabernacles, or translated in the New Living, the Festival of Shelters. So let me give you a little bit of context. If you're interested in that whole study of the Feast, one of our deacons, David Weber, has written a wonderful study on the Feast uh, of the Jews, the Old Testament. And, and you can get that study. It's in print. He teaches it here at our church. Uh, but there were three feasts feasts or festivals that were a part of their religious heritage. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's called here, the Festival of Shelters. And so here's what the the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Shelters was about. The New Living Commentary puts it like this. I hope you can read that print. The Festival of Shelters was an annual seven-day autumn harvest festival in Jerusalem six months after Passover. People lived in temporary shelters for the seven days as a reminder or a commemoration of the tents Israel used for the 40 days in the wilderness. So in other words, they were looking back upon, they were commemorating the time that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. They didn't have permanent homes. They lived in, in temporary shelters or tabernacles in older translations of Scripture. And so they celebrated that. They remembered that in this festival each year six months after Passover. So that's the backdrop for this conversation between Jesus and his brothers. So let's go back to that conversation, verse 6. Jesus replied to his brothers, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world doesn't hate you, but it does hate me, because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because important phrase here. My time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Now some cynics, some skeptics, some uh, unbelievers have said, see, this proves that Jesus wasn't perfect. He lied to his brothers here. He said he wasn't going to the festival, and he did go. Well, that only shows their lack of understanding of the Greek text here. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read those who are, and it makes it clear that that there's a phrase here that's key. It says, my time has not yet come. Jesus was not saying I'm not going to the festival, he's saying I'm not going now I'm not yet going and the word translated time here in the Greek is the word kairos follow me here it means not just any random arbitrary time it means the time the proper time and I would put it this way the precise divinely appointed time Think about this. Jesus, who before he came to earth to to walk among us, lived and, and existed without the construct, the human construct of time. Revelation describes Jesus as the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. Before he came to earth, time did not bind him. But when he became a man, when he walked among us, he allowed himself to be placed in that construct of time that governs everything in our lives. Are you following with me? We are, we are bound by time. And you've heard the old saying, timing is everything and sometimes we get frustrated when things don't happen at our desired time as a matter of fact some of you are struggling with some kind of issue today of something that hasn't yet happened and you've been waiting for it and you've been anticipating it maybe even praying for it and it hasn't happened yet maybe you're even getting frustrated with God that it hasn't taken place yet and what we need to understand that in God's sovereign plan follow me here there is a chiropractic for every significant thing in the life of a Christ follower. There is not just a random, well, it may drop in here or drop in there. No, there is a kairos. There is a precise, divinely appointed time. And whatever that is in your life, if it is supposed to happen according to the will of God, it will happen, but not before or until God's kairos. And Jesus said... It is not yet Kairos for me to go to Jerusalem. But then it was. Verse 10. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. But others said, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. By the way, momentary pause. Don't you find that odd that there were those who said he was a fraud and they wouldn't believe after he had fed 5,000 men and their families on the hillside one day? After he had healed people who were sick? After he had cast demons out of those? who were possessed by evil spirits, and yet they couldn't believe. And some who were leaning toward faith were too afraid to believe. Look at verse 13. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And then a monumental shift occurs in verse 14. Then midway through the festival... Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? You see, in their culture... Academic and theological training for those who would teach the Scripture was incredibly important. William Barclay, the commentator, understood it and said it so well. Follow this quickly. The criticism was that Jesus was quite uneducated. Jesus had been to no rabbinic school, and it was the practice that only the disciple of an accredited teacher was entitled to expound Scripture and to talk about the law. And yet, here was this Galilean carpenter, a man with no training whatsoever, daring to quote and expound Moses to them. In their day and in our day, academics often produces arrogance. There are people who are so academically oriented and they are so proud of their education. By the way, education is a good thing. We ought to pursue education. We ought to pursue training. When I have somebody working on my heart, as I did recently, I want somebody who's trained, don't you? I I want somebody who is adequately, appropriately trained. And so it is theologically in, in, in their day and in ours. But that was not the case with Jesus. But let me say to anyone, especially to anyone who is young, and maybe you are academically gifted. You're an intelligent young person, and academics comes easily for you. If you are intellectually gifted, understand that didn't happen by accident. That's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And God didn't give you that gift so that you could doubt him. God didn't give you that intelligence so you could think you are too smart to believe in a divine creator. Listen, academic pursuits are worthwhile. But academic pursuits, no matter what the discipline, whether it would be science or math or philosophy or medicine or whatever you would name, academic pursuits will never fully answer all the questions they seek to answer. Why? Because God's truth is too deep for human minds to ever fully comprehend. And there's not a thing that any of those disciplines has discovered that didn't find its origin in Creator God. And the saying is true all truth is God's truth. And whatever is discovered by academic means is simply a discovery of what God has created. And Jesus' qualifications to teach the deep truths. A theology that day did not come from an academic preparation. He cites his source in verse 16. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law. Now look at this. But none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is calling them out. He's calling the Pharisees out because he is saying, you say that you believe in God's laws and God's truth, and you talk about the laws of God, but you don't want to just oppose me. You want to assassinate me. You talk about spiritual things, but you have murder in your heart. And had they been truly religious, truly spiritual people, that would have shamed them. When truly spiritual people are called on sin in their life, it brings shame and repentance. But did it bring shame and repentance to the Pharisees? No. It made them more angry and more aggressive. Verse 30, Then the leaders tried to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, look at this, because his time had not yet come. There's the kairos again. The Pharisees thought they had the power. They thought they were in control. But listen, nothing happens before or until God ordains it to happen. And it was not yet the time for Jesus to be arrested And so to see the response of many in the crowd. Verse 31, many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. A very interesting question here. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? By the way, that's still a valid question. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christ follower, you've never put your faith in in Jesus, never believed in him with your, your heart, I would ask you a similar question. What more would Jesus have to do for you to believe? I mean, if someone predicts his own death and resurrection and it happens, to me, there's nothing else left. It doesn't get any more clear than that. And so they said that day, what else would Jesus have to do? And so at this point in the drama, Jesus steps on center stage and proclaims that all that they have been celebrating in the Feast of the Tabernacles or Festival of Shelters, all that that had prophesied, he was the fulfillment standing right before them. Look at it, verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, I want you to see this this is historically and theologically significant. Here's what Jesus was fulfilling. And again, the NLT commentary puts it so well. Listen, a water ceremony was held each day during the Festival of Shelters with prayer for God to send rain in the late autumn. The final day, called the Great Day, was the climax of the festival when the ceremony was repeated seven times. Water was poured over the altar As the Levites sang Isaiah 12, verse 3 With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. What Jesus was saying is that what Isaiah had prophesied all those centuries before, That that they were celebrating with that ceremony every day during that festival was about the Holy Spirit who would come when Jesus would depart and would inhabit those who believed in him to the degree that if they would allow the Spirit of God to fill them, he would overflow from their life in a way that people would see through them the true living water. Verse 39, when he said living water, he was speaking Of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in Him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into His glory. Now, what does that mean? The days that we're studying in this series, when God walked among us, were unique in human history. There was a span of 33 years in which God became human flesh and he walked among his creations. But when that came to an end, when Jesus ascended following his resurrection back to heaven, he promised that even though he would no longer be physically present, he would send the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, who would come and who would live among his creations. And to those who put their faith in him, he would live in them and through them. And that's exactly what has happened when Jesus entered into his glory, as the NLT puts it in that 39th verse. And the people that day believed. Verse 40, when the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. But still others said, he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born in the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was was born they didn't believe because they didn't know where was jesus born in bethlehem they didn't take the time to investigate what the facts were and by the way people still do that today You ask some people, do you believe in Jesus? Well, no, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, have you ever done a serious historical study to see if what Jesus claimed really was true? No, I've I've never done that. Have you even read the New Testament all the way through? Well, no, I've never done that, but I don't believe in Jesus. I mean, how can you believe without knowing the truth, which is exactly what those people did that day? Well, the Pharisees were determined to have him arrested. Verse 43, so the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned, this is so interesting. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? By the way, that was a good question. They worked for the Pharisees. And they sent him out to arrest Jesus. And they came back without arresting him. And so they, why didn't you do your job? I love their response. Verse 46, we have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. There was just something about him. They never heard anybody speak truth like Jesus. And of course they had because he was God walking among them. Now I want to wrap this up. But as we've spent this time in John chapter 7, I want you to receive more. I want to receive more than just a better understanding of this episode in Jesus' ministry. I want us to look at what this should mean to our lives today in this crazy year of 2020. So real quickly, there's some things I really want to make sure you know and a couple of things I want to challenge you to do. Here's the first life lesson from John 7. The world to which Jesus came was unfair, unjust, and cruel. So is ours. Some people live with this delusion that the world ought to be fair, the world ought to be right, uh, things ought to be just... The Bible never says that. In fact, it says the opposite, that it will be unfair, unjust, and cruel until Jesus returns. So don't ever let the horrible things that happen in this fallen, sinful, decaying, dying world disillusion you about the goodness of God. He is the the ray of hope and light in this unfair, unjust, cruel world of ours. Here's another. If you look back on this story, instead of responding to his opponents with contempt, Jesus extended grace. So must we. Here's a reality that we're living with. Kindness and civility is disappearing from American culture. It's, it's disappearing. It's going away. And the sad, tragic thing is it's disappearing among many of those who are Christ followers. It's as if we've forgotten that Jesus actually said, love your enemies and meant it. It's as if we, we ignore or, or, or just simply disbelieve That we are to be people of grace, to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth for sure, but in love. That our Savior looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And listen, those who are blinded by the truth don't know what they're doing. They need Jesus. They need someone to share the gospel with them. But we will never show Jesus to anyone we treat or speak about with contempt. We just won't. Let's be spiritually empowered, countercultural. Let's be those who are so different, people of conviction but kindness, so that people that encounter us. Will not walk away thinking, oh, those narrow minded Christians, but they'll walk away saying, I've never heard anybody speak like that. I've never heard anybody say those things. I've never seen anybody love like that. That's what will draw them to the gospel. One more Jesus is the living water that quenches the thirst of our souls. Are you thirsty? Are you drinking in the Spirit of God through personal times in the Scripture, through times of prayer, through times of just contemplating what God is saying to to your heart? Are you drinking in the living water, or are you living in a spiritually parched place? That leads right to my first next step challenge. If you're spiritually dehydrated, drink the living water. Don't be content to live in a spiritual desert. Drink in the living water of the Lord. And then secondly, then begin today to treat those who oppose you with grace. With grace. Even if somebody criticizes you for it. Because living water will outlast the critics. Let me pray. Thank you, our Father, for this deep truth that Jesus is the living water. Thank you that you are the one to whom we can look to be our role model, to be our example, to be our empowerment, to do that which is humanly counterintuitive or maybe even impossible, but by the Spirit of God that we can have the living water flow out from us every day.